This lengthy reading of, uh, uh, in our gospel is, is a beautifully crafted story. It's full of drama. There have been times in the past when it comes around in the readings that I have had it read by a group of people who read the parts of the various people in the story. It, uh, it lends itself to any number of treatments, but since it is Lent, and the church asks us to take account of sin in the world and how it affects our lives and how we are to uh, live in the presence of God in a sinful world as people who are in fact sinners, I'd like to think with you this morning for a few moments about what this story tells us about sin and its presence in the world and in people's lives. Uh, one thing that uh, is uh, pretty obvious in everyday life and in this reading and in the scriptures as a whole is that sin affects everything. It's always there wherever you turn. This is the Bible's explanation of why the world is broken because it is infected by sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and then we hear God speaking to Adam saying, it's no longer going to be very much fun. You will earn your bread by the sweat of your brow and the earth is going to bring forth for you thorns and thistles. And we know now that the earth brings forth a whole lot else as well. Life and the world are infected by the presence of sin. But we have to be careful how we think about it, according to what we've read here. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's got to be sin in there somewhere. Babies should not be born blind. They ought to be born whole and healthy and all that. Who sinned? And Jesus says, you can't look at it that way. Yes, sin is involved, but it's not this man, and it's not his parents. You cannot draw a line from <clears throat> this suffering to that sin and say, well, there it is. People try to do this. <clears throat> the Haitian earthquakes, do they come because the Haitians are worse people than anybody else? Some actually say that, but no. The scriptures don't encourage that at all. You can reason from suffering to sin, or excuse me, you can reason from sin to suffering sometimes. People who engage habitually in behaviors that are uh, uh, unhealthy or uh, uh, contrary to God's purposes, you, you can almost predict in some cases that, that that's going to end in suffering, you know you eat things and smoke things and drink things uh, in a way that is, is uh, contrary to, to human flourishing and God's commandment, if you spend Friday and Saturday night behaving like a Cossack, uh, it's almost predictable that you're going to suffer. You're going to end up in some kind of difficulty. But you can't reason the other way and say, well, here's suffering, here's the sin that brought about that suffering. There's too much suffering in the world that's simply not traceable. You've seen it over and over. It's happened, it's happened to me uh, this past week, and this is an incident, uh, a situation that Carl 
and Susan Euchre are both aware of as well. A good friend of ours, a wonderful man, was diagnosed with a particularly mean-spirited cancer in a very advanced stage, and his prognosis is horrible. And there is nothing about this man's life that would ever invite that kind of suffering. There is nothing about him that, that, would, that would predict that his family should, should end up in this situation. It's just the fact that the world is invaded and inhabited by sin, and our only hope is in Jesus and the good news about him. You know, we, we commonly, uh, I, I, I used this in the opening prayer this morning, uh, uh, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and it was pointed out to me some time back that it isn't just the sins of the world, those individual acts of perfidy and uh, rebellion against God that, that Jesus will take away. It's the sin. It's the whole thing. It's the whole thing that causes these terrible problems. Jesus will at last redeem the world from that. And so Jesus steers the conversation away from the cause of this suffering and he steers it towards the purpose in that particular instance of suffering. This happened, he said, so that the mighty work of God will be seen by all of you. Whereupon he uh, takes dirt, makes mud, spreads it on the man's eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And Jesus, at that point, disappears. The rest of the chapter brings about a second reality about sin. And you see it incandescently in this passage that sin makes people spiritually blind. You, uh, you can see this from verse 39 toward the end of the passage where Jesus says that the purpose in his coming was so that the blind would be able to see and that the, the, the people who claim they can see, they're going to become blind. It, it all gets reversed. Sin makes people blind, whereas Jesus, performing the mighty works of God, makes blind people see. Just look at this quickly. The blind man, he receives his physical sight. He's born blind, never saw a ray of light in his life. And suddenly he can see. This is actually a kind of a double miracle. Because Jesus not only repaired his optic nerve or retina or whatever, whatever else it was that kept him from seeing from birth, he also provided his brain with the software he needed to process his new input. I mean, if you've never seen in your life, how do you make sense of depth perception or color or, or any of the nuances that, that uh, delight our eyes? Uh, I, I've had the privilege for the past decade or so of living across the street from a blind man. Uh, his name is Kurt, and Kurt is one of the most accomplished people I've ever run across. Kurt is a good musician. He plays a mean mandolin and guitar, and uh, he's, his house is full of little engineering projects that he has worked out without being able to see. Uh, he very rarely makes a mistake. Uh, the story is told in the neighborhood of the day that Kurt, he does this sort of thing. He went up on his roof to do some repair. And he forgot where he'd put in the ladder. <laughs> he had to sit up there until somebody, his wife or a neighbor, came along to tell him where the ladder was so he could get down. But that is one of the rare instances 
in which Kurt got in any trouble because of his blindness. But Kurt had an advantage. He lost his sight at the age of 16 in a hunting accident, so he has a fairly good background in what the world looks like and how it works. This man was starting absolutely from scratch. He'd never seen a thing, and he didn't know how to process it, but then he did, because Jesus, the light of the world, had provided him everything he needed to see clearly. In fact, he's got spiritual insight as well. You can see that as the story unfolds. Jesus isn't even there, but here the man starts out by saying, well, I was healed by the man called Jesus. And as the uh, controversy unfolds, the man says, well, he, he, he must be a prophet. He's, he's a man who speaks for God. And then as the thing continues to brew, he says, uh, well, he's, he's actually sent by God. He, he, he's from God. And it isn't until the very end, but it does happen, that he meets Jesus again, and he finally believes that Jesus is the Son of Man, which, by the way, is a, a term that uh, in, the, uh, in Jesus' day and among those people was a very clear reference to the expected Messiah. Uh, you've got to be the man. You are the Son of Man. See, he can see physically, but he can also see spiritually. He sees who Jesus is, and he's not intimidated by any of the things that are thrown at him. He's not a conformist, a man whose uh, uh, work I uh, have paid some attention to. Uh, uh, well, I mentioned him last time I was here, uh, Tim Keller. Uh, in, in his book, The Reason for God, he, he points out that one of, the, uh, uh, one of the ways people come to their belief system, whatever it is, is the question of, what effect is this going to have on the people that I admire? And what effect is it going to have on how I fit in to a particular social group that I'm interested in? We tend to adopt beliefs that are going to make us acceptable to the people that we most want to impress. It happens over and over again. You call it peer pressure, I suppose. And here, uh, he, he, this blind man, he's a member of the synagogue, and he's a member of a family, and uh, it seems like everything is set up to put him in opposition to, to all of that by his insistence that Jesus is from God. But they couldn't intimidate him. In the end, he's able to say, all I know is I was blind. Now I can see, and I can see in every way. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, whatever sin might have been involved in that to cause his blindness, it has been overcome by the mighty works of God at the hands of Jesus. Now, in contrast to that, you have the Pharisees and uh, all of the man's critics. These were the people who uh, claimed to have eyesight. They probably had certificates on the wall saying... Uh, you know, I'm an expert, ask me your questions, I can see all things. They were experts in the Torah, and uh, they, they put themselves forward as, as people who could answer your questions. And now, the mighty work of God stands right there in front of them, and all the lights go out. They can't seem to see a thing. I don't know if they stage blindness the way they do kidney disease or cancer, stages one, two, three, and four, but these people are affected by
by what appears to be a stage four blindness. It's, it's that blindness that's so complete, it's right before the end. In their blindness, they argue against everything that's happened. They argue along two tracks. One of them is, this never happened. The miracle is bogus. This is not the same man that used to be blind, and so on and so forth. And uh, lots of uh, testimony is brought forth saying, yeah, this is the man, all right. And now he's, he appears to see. And when that uh, particular line of argument doesn't work, they impugn the righteousness of Jesus. They say, well, you may be able to see, but you can't say that the man who, who did this is any kind of a prophet or from God or any of that. He is, after all, a Sabbath breaker. Now, I'm sure Jesus healed on all, all the days of the week, but the ones you read in the Gospel often are on the Sabbath. He was always in trouble for doing this sort of thing. I, when I was in a youth group years ago, and that's many years ago, uh, I, I heard a guy point this out. He, he said uh, he, he's, Jesus did, in fact, respond to this charge once about being a Sabbath breaker by saying, well, look, you, you circumcise on the Sabbath day, so I heal people, you cut them up. At any rate, that's their whole case, except for the, uh, in addition to which, they, they also say, well, we don't even know where this guy comes from. You know, who is he? We know Moses. We know all about Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. Why are they doing this? Why are they raising these stupid arguments against the, the, the mighty works of God that is standing there, staring them right in the face? I think the answer to that lies in verse 22 where we are informed that they had decided at the outset that anybody who confesses Jesus is going to get the floor shine. He's going to get thrown, kicked right out of the synagogue, and that, that's the end of their association. So they can't. They can't admit that Jesus is from God. They can't admit that he does miracles like this because they've already got it decided that he, he's not to be believed. There's a, a book written many, many years ago by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce uh, describes a bus trip through hell. And you, you get to see who's there and hear a little bit of why they're there. And uh, spoiler alert, if you ever want to read it, uh, at the end of the trip, nobody wants to leave hell. You know, they, they, they're so used to it that uh, it, it seems acceptable. But there's a point in that bus trip where we see in hell two bishops who are uh, discussing the careers that got them there. And uh, one of the bishops says to the other, but you see, we were playing with loaded dice. We didn't want the creeds to be true. We didn't want the gospel to be true. And that was on that basis that they went ahead to distort the Christian message and to mislead the people of God. It happened with that precondition, that uh, presupposition that this can't be true and anybody who says that it is is out it's still fairly common today even ordinary people start out their whatever uh, pondering they do about faith they start out by saying the Christian story can't be true so you see the blind man sees and the experts 
or blind. Where does this leave us? Well, just a couple of concluding thoughts. We need to be modest about our spiritual eyesight because whatever it is, it came to us by grace and it's nothing that we worked out for ourselves. We still have blind spots. Sin still affects our lives. And we cannot be smug about whatever spiritual eyesight we've been granted. We can sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But remember, that happened by the grace of Jesus, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot walk through life smugly thinking that we are smarter, wiser, or better than other people. To uh, take ourselves too seriously on our spiritual eyesight is a spiritual problem. And the answer to a spiritual problem is always the Holy Spirit. May the the Holy Spirit instill in us uh, a, a proper sense that we are the objects of God's grace who has granted this to us. In the same way, we need to be charitable and patient with those who are still wandering in some stage of blindness. We've got to remember that they're not the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. And the Holy Spirit, who has granted sight to so many, has access to them as well. And we pray that the works of God from the Jesus, the light of the world, will become manifest to them as well. And finally, we see at the end of the story that the blind man, formerly blind man, has been kicked out of the synagogue. He's lost everything that he had while he was blind. Uh, His family had been practically willing to throw him under the bus during the controversy that we read earlier, and uh, we don't know what his relationship is with them anymore because uh, you know, they don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue either. And his social network is lying in pieces on the ground. What's to become of him? Well, he has Jesus, the Son of Man, who has come back to him, revealed himself, and the, blind, the formerly blind man receives him, believes in him, and worships him. His social, work, his social network may be gone, but he's got Jesus, the Son of Man. He'll take that any day, and so should we.